Many of us think about managing up, but we don't often consider how to help our manager to be successful themselves. In this episode, former presidential advisor David Gergen on how to help your manager to shine. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 588. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. When we're talking about leadership, we are often thinking about how do we develop the people well that we are leading in our organization? How do we help the organization be successful with that team, sometimes with our peers, Rarely, though, are we thinking about how do we help our manager to succeed? That's the focus of today's conversation, and I'm so glad to have an expert with us who's had so much success in helping contribute to the development and the success of many organizations, including at the very highest levels of leadership. I'm so pleased to introduce to you David Gergen. He has served as a White House advisor to four U.S. presidents of both political parties, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. He then served as editor of the U.S. News and World Report, and for the past two decades, he has served as a professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. David is also a senior political analyst for CNN, where he is a respected voice in national and international affairs. He is the author of Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Oh, it's my honor, Dave. Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure's mine. I should start by saying that I was in a bookstore about 20 years ago and <laughs> struggling as an early leader and I hung out a lot in the leadership section and the business management section, and I stumbled across your book, had your picture on the cover. And as I started to look through it, there was a picture, I don't recall if it was on the front or back of the book or in the inside cover, of you and four presidents. And yes. the picture was of presidents, not all of the same political party, and you had worked for all of them. And I thought, right. well, here's someone maybe I could learn something from who's had success <laughs> in a lot of different venues. Yeah. How did it happen that you ended up working for um, folks at different parties? Because that, it's not terribly unusual for someone to work in multiple White House administrations, but I don't think it's very common even today for someone to be a senior advisor yeah. for different well, political parties. If you'd like, I'll show you the scars on my back. <laughs> I bet you have them. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up working for Bill Clinton? Because you had worked in Republican administrations, and then all of a sudden, here you are working <clears throat> for uh, for a Democrat. How did that play out? Well, it was, a, again, a, a, a longer story. I'll, I'll truncate it a good deal. But I had worked for three Republican presidents. And then I went into, uh, I went into the journalistic world. And uh, I edited U.S. News for a couple of years, as you, as you mentioned. But as a result of going into the journalistic world, I began traveling far more in areas of, of, of the country I'd never been into. You know, I'd worked in the White House. I'd worked in these glamorous places. And I and I found myself because I was really curious about life in the in, the, in urban areas and, and in slum areas. How tough is it? What is it like? What are the questions you 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 face? And I began to see America through a different light. The more time I spent outside Washington, the better I understood what is a very complex country. But I, I found working on the Democratic side, Bill Clinton happened to be someone I'd gotten to know during the interview. I invited him up frequently to speak at U.S. News. 
when he was in Washington. And uh, when he was when he was then elected president, he ran into trouble in his first few months. He called me and he asked me if I would come in and help him on a short term basis. And you know, I'm old fashioned. I come from the tradition that if the president of the United States says he's in trouble and needs your help, you say, when do you start? I think he turned out to be a better president than people expected. I still think in retrospect, he's one of our better presidents. But I, I was honored to go work for him. And I tell you, it did open my mind, Dave, to the idea that there is more than one way to look at reality. You can be wearing a lens from a Democratic administration, or you can be wearing a lens from a Republican, and the world looks quite different uh, from, from those two ways. Yeah, I'm really curious how you did that, because you worked for, I mean, at least in the White House, four really different people. When I think of like yeah. what I know publicly about Nixon and Ford and <laughs> Reagan and Clinton, I mean, right. four really, really different people. How did you calibrate to be able to figure them out quickly in a way that you could then be helpful? Well, I wasn't, you know, I, I made mistakes early on. And, and uh, one of the first person I went to work for at the national level uh, was Richard Nixon. I, and I didn't obviously didn't know him. And he was considerably older, but had a very different you know, life's path. But um, I, I was I, I came to Washington in a Navy uniform. I did three and a half years in the Navy as a junior junior officer, very junior and not very good at it. I was recruited to come to Washington to work on draft reform in my last year of service. And that's when I started to get to know Nixon a little bit. And then they invited me to come join. When I left the service, they asked me, asked me if I would come in the White House, which I did, and served in the West Wing and worked a lot on draft. But the Nixon I first saw and continued to see was the best strategist I'd ever seen in public life. He, he liked to study the past so that he could understand the future. That was Churchill's view, how you come to grips with reality. You know, the person who can, can see farther back, Churchill argued, can often see farther ahead. Well, the strategist strength that Nixon had, you know, accounted for a lot of good things he did, among other things, to split China and, and Russia apart. So it was a divide and conquer strategy that worked out marvelously well and helped to win the Cold War. So if that had been all there was to Nixon, he would have been one of our better presidents. But, but alas and alack, it was not. It, the, the more I came to know him, the more I saw there is a dark side that you don't often see in public. Nixon had demons inside him that he had never learned to conquer. You know, there all of us have temptations in life. Carl Jung, that's a great psychiatrist, argued all of us have dark sides and we have bright sides. And you have to learn how to control your dark side. Nixon had never done that. And it got him into way of a lot of trouble. He was asked by um, David Frost of BBC, once asked him on television, how to explain Watergate? How did he fall so far so fast? And Nixon said, I gave my enemies a sword, and then they ran me through, which was exactly what happened. So you learn then, I, I very quickly learned that what you see on the surface, especially in politics, is not necessarily what's there in lower depths. And it's really, really important as a staff person to help somebody overcome some of those, those temptations. Uh, you know, I worked for Clinton. My last president was Clinton. As I say, I thought he was a much better president than he's remembered sometimes being today. But when I when he called me and asked me to come in, what I discovered about him was that he had lost his self-confidence. He'd been, I'd known him when he was governor of, of Arkansas, considered one of the best 10 governors in the country by, by a long shot and had so much promise. But coming from Arkansas, a, a small land-bound state, you know, it is a, uh, it's a big leap. 
just as it's a big, it was a big leap for Carter to come from Georgia. You know, presidents who come from New York or California have been working in the big leagues by the time they get to the White House, and that makes them harder, makes them stronger. But, but Clinton had never done that, and he was floundering when I got there. So the question was, Dave, how are we going to get him right? How is he, and, and my own view was, under no circumstances should we try to remake who Clinton is. We shouldn't try to turn him into somebody he's not. That's the road that doesn't work and gets you into a lot of trouble too often, that if you try to fake it, who you are, you're eventually found out. And instead of trying to to, uh, to play to his and, and, and try, to, try to force him out into a different personality, different true north, we worked very, very hard to see if we could restore the self-confidence that he could take small steps at first, but gradually work his way up. And, and eventually he got out of the ditch and was, was fine. But I, I can tell you, it wasn't us, you know, the staff that, that, that made the difference. It was him. We just had to play to his best instincts, to his great strengths. And if you do that, you often get a much better result. That's one of the distinctions that really struck me in your writing is the importance of building up the manager's strengths and diminishing yes. their weaknesses. And yes. I, I think a lot of times we don't necessarily think about influencing our managers in that way. And we talk about strengths finder on this show often and like leveraging our strengths. When you look back at that time with Clinton and you mentioned, you know, he needed to do it obviously, but there was, uh, I'm guessing there's something that the staff did that helped to make that easier for him to help guide that journey. When you look back, what do you think that helped him to get into a place where he started to zero in more on his strengths than getting caught up in the the confidence challenges he was having? Yeah, I, I thought it was best not to get into the rough and tumble of, of politics where he was going to get shot at a lot by his adversaries. And they would try and it was sensing weakness on his part, sensing he was floundering. They would try to bring him down. Instead, what we wanted to do and what we tried to do was to build a zone of of comfort around him, protection of safety, if you would. So that when he went out and did an event, the feedback was on the positive side. You know, he would often, after giving a talk somewhere, you know, he, he, he'd beckon me over and say, well, how did I do? And he wanted, you know, he wanted the truth. And I gave him the truth, but the, it was truth was looking for the, what was positive in him and what we could, what we could say to him over time that gave him more and more confidence that he was fine. You know, he just needed to get over and get, get into a good place again, and he'd be fine, and which he did. And um, sometimes staffs undervalue the quality of a person. Uh, we did that, I thought, with Jerry Ford. Eh? Jerry Ford was one of the nicest men I've ever met in public life. He was just a very sweet guy, cared a lot, did, never thought he'd be president, totally accidental, loved doing it. But, you know, he planned to go home. He wasn't going to be around. And then when Nixon resigned and they knew a new vice president, Ford was the man they could trust, and they, 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 everybody knew that. But I think in the end of the day, uh, we underestimated Ford as a, as a leader. Let me tell you a short story, if I might. Uh, Ford was notorious for giving these uh, speeches with essentially a lot of one-syllable words. And they had a C. John or C. C. Susie Run quality to them. You know, they were very, very ele elementary, not complicated, very straightforward. And, and that was the stuff that we fed him in the speeches for oh, I don't know, the whole year when I was there. Uh, it was disconcerting to see because it, sounded, it was so simplistic. But about a month or two after he left office, I can't remember exactly when it was, I got a call from his office saying, uh, he, President Ford has a speech to make here in the next few days. 
he has a draft. Would you? He'd like you to read it and and then talk to him about it. Would you be willing to do that? And I said, of course, I'd do it. So they sent me the draft. And I read it, and it was like it was an elegant speech, very very well done. But it had all sorts of three and four syllable words in it. It was it was complex. It was nuanced. All the things that he didn't do in his as president. Huh. And uh, so I felt I figured, well, he's calling me because he wants me to turn this into a Ford speech. He wants to take all the complexity out. And so when he called me, I said, Mr. President, uh, he said, how how to do? And I said, well, Mr. President, this is a really, really good speech. Um, but would you like me to work on it for you, sir? Put it in, you know, more in your language and what you want. And I could hear him chuckling on his pipe, you know, on the phone. And he, after I went down that path for a while, he said, well, David, I just really wanted you to look at it because this is the first time I've had room and space in my schedule. I could write my own speech. And I just wanted to know what you thought about it. And I thought, oh, my God, Mr. President, we've misled. We, all those years, we treated you badly. You know, you were mm. perfectly capable of giving a really good, uh, complex speech. And instead, we, we, we moved you into C.J. Run. And I, I never forgot that because he was very kind about it. But it was also true, we as the staff, you know, there are times the staff can get pretty damn arrogant. And it's the wrong way to manage manage up. Managing up is about creating zones and pathways for a, any leader who has to make hard calls and is trying their best to do something right for the, by the country. And you're there to help and to be a to be another voice, to be in someone else who looks at things a different way. You know, and you know things like that are are, are really important. And I say all of this in the context when when you first come out of school. I don't care almost whatever, whatever field it is you're working in, you almost inevitably are going to work for somebody else. You're going to be a staff person or a junior person, or you're going to be down in the ranks. And you, and one of the most important things you have to do is learn how to manage up and to be successful at helping your boss. I so appreciate you sharing the story about Clinton and also Ford. And as I was thinking about that, and playing to their strengths. The analogy has been used several times on the show over the years of thinking about leadership like a garden, that if you're leading well, it's not about forcing, you know, you, you wouldn't go out in your garden and try to force a plant to grow a certain way, but you would create yeah. the environment to weed and to get sunlight and water yeah. where, you know, you the, the plant is going to grow to be what it needs to be and what it's designed to do. Yeah. And I had never thought about it in the other direction, though until this conversation. I always thought about it as the leader leading the team. But, you know, it's so interesting that your your experience of thinking about it, how do I actually support the manager in creating the environment where they can play to their strengths and diminish their weaknesses, like you said? I mean, such a such a helpful way to look at it. The There's a term in the book that says chief diplomat, that part of learning to lead up is being a great chief diplomat. And I think that this is another place where oftentimes we don't think about our role if we're serving someone, especially if someone who, who's in a very visible, very powerful role. Tell me what a chief diplomat is, how you think about that, and then what does that mean for someone who's, who's, who's serving someone who's in power? Well, here's the thing that goes on. The, I came in as a you know, very junior and over, over a long period of time worked up in a very senior position. But you have to um, you have to take this with a a certain sense of understanding and perspective to know you know what the dynamics of any organization are going to be. 
but that getting the dynamics requires a lot of listening early on. You know, just keep your head down a little bit and respect the fact that there are other people around you who have been had a lot more experience than you have, and so you, you need to give some weight to their views. But gradually get to know where people are coming from within within the group itself. Uh, I saw this with Bill Clinton in particular that he would walk into a, a room of strangers and he would work he would work the room for about an hour talking to as many people as he could, getting their perspectives on what was going on, what's the dynamics of this group, which what are they leaning about, what do they want to talk to me about, and then only after he spent an hour doing that and listening, he would then get up and talk the conclusions he'd reached. And he could weave in what he heard with what he already believed. And that made him a, a much more um, interesting and trustworthy leader of the team. Mm. Yeah, it, it's such a good analogy for thinking about how we can do that as well, too, serving on a staff of yeah. being able to. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me that, again, looking at it from a different direction than we often think about is reflecting back to the rest of the organization, like the mood of the top leader, what are they thinking about, what's working, what's not, and doing that with some intention. And I'm guessing that there's a there's a bit of a tension there of like, I think sometimes we tend not to say things because we feel like we're potentially betraying the person that we're serving. Yeah. But I sense a call of like, you know, there's there's a space to do some of that. And it's actually helpful to do that. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, in that, in that regard, you want to be respectful. Uh, and it's extremely important that you have the guts to speak up if you think he's going off or she's going off track, you know, speaking conscience to power or speaking, speaking truth to power. You talk about that in the book. What's, yes. What's the distinction between the two? Well, I, I think there's a difference, and that is speaking truth to power is to tell your boss some, some unpleasant things, but that need to be said in order to have make sure your boss has a full range of perspectives, good and bad, about what you're about to propose. Speaking conscience to power is much more about giving moral advice to a leader about what is the difference between right and wrong. Uh, David McCullough is telling people these days, we, we, have, we, we emphasize too much right and left in politics when we ought to be emphasizing right and wrong. And uh, I, I think that's I think that hits the nail on the head. I must tell you, um, one of the reasons I came to respect Al Gore was consistently when I was in the White House and that in that Clinton White House, whenever any idea came up, Gore's first question would be, "Is it the right thing to do?" But it was it was a good question and it gave all of us pause for the right reasons. And that doesn't often happen uh, in in organizational life. The subconscious of power, to me, is, is, is riskier in talking to your boss about it because it implies that you have some sort of superior moral standing to him or to her, the leader. And that ain't something they want to hear because frequently it's not true, but it's also demeaning. So you have to be, I think you have to be thoughtful about it, but it's the right thing to do. How did you, how did you get yourself to a place where... That was doable for you. And what? how did you approach those conversations when those words needed to be said? Yeah, it wasn't clear, you know. It wasn't clear what to do in Watergate because the, the, the cover-up on Watergate worked inside the White House better than it did out anywhere else. You know, we we were, as a mid-level staff person at that point, I was running the speech writing research shop. I had about 50 people working for me. And people would come to me and say, 
look, I think this thing is starting to smell. I, I, should I get off the ship or I get off the boat? And I, and I often said, well, it's a matter of your conscience. You know, I, I don't know. I said, I'm, I had not seen the evidence that I thought was convincing that he had you know, broken a lot of laws of Watergate, but, but that's only because the evidence hadn't fully come out yet. But it, it was hard to be able to tell people what to do. I generally told them, if your conscience is moving you, it, it, you, you should, well, let's find a, a safe way to leave, you to leave. Once we knew he was going down, I told people, you can't leave. You got to stay. You can, you're a rat leaving a sinking ship. If you, if you leave now, you're better off taking your chances in life. And frankly, it was a big risk for a lot of people leaving the White House under those circumstances or staying in the White House under those circumstances. Because you felt like I felt like now I know what it was like for the Chicago Black Sox back in the early 1920s when they threw the World Series. And, you know, it was all found out and they could never play baseball again. And they were never allowed on the field. And I, I kept thinking, is that going to happen to us where we're working here in Watergate? Am I done at the age of 25 or 28 or whatever it was? Am I fully done? And there was legitimate reason to ask. It turns out F. Scott Fitzgerald was wrong when he said there, there are no second chances in American life. There are second chances. You just, they're, they're often hard to find. And they're often hard to keep, but there are second chances in American public life, as so many of us who went through Watergate, you know, we survived. How did you get yourself into a place where you were ready to have a conversation like that? And what did you say in order to allow what you needed to be said to be heard, but also to not have that superiority kind of thing get in the way? Well, you know, there's no perfect solution to that, that question. I, I found that it was easier sometimes to write a note. Uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't so much into electronics at that point, but to short note to my superior, uh, questioning something. And that, that had a, uh, it, it was suggested without being sort of, a, a, you know, pointing a finger and without saying, you know, this is wrong or this is, you know, this is a place on fire and we're going crazy. Yeah, you had to be, you had to deliver the message in a truthful way, but that did not mean you had to hit your boss over the head with it. Yeah, you know, you, had to, you needed to win his confidence. What you're trying to do is get things changed, moving it in the right direction, which would protect him, but also you had a higher calling. It wasn't just protecting the president, it was protecting the country. And if you really believed, as, as I did, you're, you're damn lucky to be working in any White House, but your first responsibility is, to, is the oath you take when you go in, it's not to the person you're, you're you're working for, and you've got to keep that pretty clear in your mind. And you have to be very clear in your mind that you're not the president, that the other person is the president. You have a chance to sort of influence the decision, but don't think you can substitute yourself for the president. And don't go around second guessing him once he makes the decision. Don't second guess him and uh, with your friends because it, it, that's not fair to him. And we, we've got you know we, we this is a team effort. You've had a tremendous career in public life, David. Many of your family members are serving in public life. So many of us have watched you on the news over the years and read your books. And as much as you've seen, I'm also guessing that there's something you've changed your mind on as time has gone on. I'm curious, as you reflect on the last couple of years, perhaps, what's something that you've changed your mind on? I changed my mind. Well, I really come around strongly to believe that while the presidency 
is a precious institution, you know, one of the most powerful in the world and has been for a long time. And it's really important that we have a successful presence. But I think that the rest of the country has to be engaged too. This is, you know, what, what, how we're dealing with the Chinese or other things. This is a, a, a like, like an all hands on deck, whether it's, whether it's been about shoot, shoot ups in schools or, or China, whatever it is. We need a new civic culture. We frankly, we need a changing the guard. We need a passing of the baton so that the people who are getting, you know, like me, I just turned 80 years old. 80 years old, if, if my judgment is too old. You don't want a president who's 80 years old. You don't want somebody running a big organization at 80 years old. Those of us who are older can still play an important role. We can still be helpful in terms of giving advice or making suggestions or you know, helping in a generalized way to, to prepare a lot of younger people for service and for leadership. That's what we ought to be doing. But we need to pass the baton on to younger generations that are knocking at the door now and, and have a lot of promise. And we need to hang in there and let, let some younger people start taking far more responsibility. You know, people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, they're, they're seasoned soldiers now. They're hardened up. They're, they're, they're toughened up. People like that are really, really good at the leadership role. Similarly, there are Black women coming out who are moral leaders of our country increasingly. And I don't always agree with their politics, but I really celebrate the fact that people of color, that Black women in particular, are, you know, are just are really stepping up in the arena. They're determined to make this a better country. And that is a good thing. We should celebrate it. David Gergen is the author of Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. David, thank you so much for your time and your work. Thank you. It's, again, an honor to be here. If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 433, How to Start Managing Up. Tom Henschel was my guest on that episode. Tom is the host of the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast. We talked in that conversation about the strategies and the mindsets for being able to influence up effectively. Uh, we hit a little bit on that in this conversation today, but Tom and I went into a lot more depth on the tactics and the next steps for you when you are trying to influence upwards, episode 433 for that conversation. I'd also recommend a couple of episodes we've had with other leaders who've worked in the White House. One of them is episode 440, Leadership in the Midst of Chaos. Former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis was my guest on that episode. We talked about his experience in being a Marine Corps general and how coaching is so important to his work and how he led and developed people, episode 440 for that conversation. And I'd also recommend episode 456 with Susan Rice, How to Be Diplomatic. Susan Rice, former ambassador to the United Nations and former national security advisor. She talked about her time in the Obama White House and also how diplomacy is such an important part of her work and, of course, important for all of us as leaders. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 505 with Patrick Lencioni on your leadership motive. That conversation is all about the heart that David Gergen talked about today, the importance of having your heart in the right place. Uh, all of us get tempted by prestige and power and position, and yet the leaders who are most successful are the ones who learn to set that aside and to lean into heart. 
That's the importance of the leadership motive. Pat and I talked about that in detail in episode 505. It's a great compliment to this conversation with David. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It will give you access to an entire array of benefits inside of the free membership portal, including my own personal library, all of our member casts, my interview and book notes, and the ability to search all of the past episodes by topic that I've aired since 2011. So you can find the episode and the expert that is most relevant to what you are facing right now in your leadership role. All of that you can find at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and you will be off and running with us in just a few moments. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Ruchika Tolshian to the show. She is going to be showing us how to create inclusive hiring practices, an important conversation and a critical focus for all leaders right now. Join me for that conversation with Ruchika next week. Have a great week, and I'll see you back on Monday.